maybe talk about, uh, I was going to ask about kind of how you pick winning companies, but maybe kind of weave that into uh, maybe a, uh, a flat file who's in the, uh, you know, simplifying the, the data onboarding space and uh, product signals who does the autonomous uh, pr- product feedback. So maybe kind of weave, weave some of that in with those guys. Yeah, absolutely. Both of those, I think, are, you know, perfect examples um, with with Flatfile, known one of the co-founders, Eric Crane, you know, for over a decade, worked together in Boston before we really knew much of anything. But, you know, we were trying to help a company be successful that was eventually, um, you know, acquired early 2021. And at that point, known as Brandwatch. Um, and his co-founder, um, David Boscovich, they worked together at uh, Envoy and, and built the data import API. So, um, knowing the founders, trusting them, and then they already have a product that has customers. I, I think that's, um, a relatively easy decision. I think a bunch of firms sometimes talk themselves out of those things because, you know, there's a TAM analysis, total addressable market that, you know, is, is not visible today, but great founders always find a way to, you know, increase their market and build their next product and, and do more for their customers. Um, so I was fortunate to be involved early there. Um, and just really proud of how those two have stuck together and built the business. I think it truly is like an indispensable problem for any company to solve. How do you get data into your application that you're building, any technology-focused company? Um, and then it was very similar with product signals. You know, had 10 customers, any business you've ever been in, you know, they struggle with product feedback, what do customers need? Um, I think a lot of that comes from the field, from sales calls, from talking to your existing customers. Um, so just the ability to gather a lot of those insights, you know, kind of the metadata around product feedback, similar to how we thought about sales data with related queue, I think is a big unaddressed problem. I think people go way deep into the project management execution of the feedback, but actually just having that crystal ball around, you know, what all your customers, hundreds, eventually thousands of customers want at any given point in time um, is really interesting. So for me, it's, I, those are easy ones. I think when, you know, you like the founders, you've, you've felt the problem, and then they already have a product built that has customers. It's, it's a bit more challenging when it's, you know, two founders in a slide deck. Um, and at that point, you're kind of in the wilderness for a bit longer, figuring out what levers you can turn to, to help the business. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the cool thing, I think, with product signals is, and I'm you know, biased from a, a sales or go-to-market side, but, you know, too often engineering, yeah, may or may, yeah, I'll say gets the feedback, but they're kind of blind to it. And so they, they have their product roadmap. That's what they want to do. And sales really doesn't have a good opportunity to kind of give, give that feedback. So like back in the, uh, you know, I'll say back in the old, old days at EMC, I mean, sales was very tied in with engineering. That's the way Dick and Roger had it. Engineers would go on sales calls. You know, they were, there's kind of you know, a strong mutual respect. But I think these days more and more engineering is kind of on their own. They really don't respect sales. They really don't go on sales calls. So the you know salespeople are sitting here saying, "Yeah, I'm trying to sell this. Customers want that, and you know all we got to do is tweak it." And by the way, I've been hearing this feedback for a while. If you listen to me six months ago, we could have that feature you know ready now. So it almost kind of is a great way to kind of memorialize or put in writing kind of the feedback that sales is hearing, and then you're able to kind of see what happens because you know how often is it that you know. The shit hits the fan. Board says, "Okay, we're missing our numbers." You know, they don't want to shoot the CEO. CEO says, "Yeah, it's a CRO," and the CRO is like, "Well, hey, this is I'm struggling with this whole product market fit. We don't have this. We don't have that. Oh, you're just not selling, right?" So, yeah, I think it could be almost a. Uh, I think I was joking with uh, with Evan. You know, it could be almost like a, a a CRO lifeline for their jobs. 
right? I mean, how's that for a value prop? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's totally right. Um, and I've also used the dying green line a couple of times, you know, who Ben Hortz described as like godlike CEO where, you know, what you say to the sales team is, you know, why do we need you? Look at how great the product is. What you say to the product team is, you know, look at the sales yeah. teams, closing all these deals, making sure we can all get paid. But I think you kind of need that, you know, you need that, that balance and that tension on the yep. line where, you know, it takes a bunch of different skill sets and, you know, software is really just a complex team sport. So totally agree. Like your customer has the, the insight has the truth. You're never going to be smarter than your customers, but how do you go execute on that, you know, feedback in that direction? That that's how these iconic companies are built. Um, and Adam Aaron's is a close buddy and someone I've learned a lot from, but like, you know, where you start and where you grow these businesses is pretty exceptional if you're in the field, listening to customers and, and letting everyone play to their strengths. So definitely seen a number of companies get that wrong where, someone thinks they have like a universal insight where it's actually much more about the engine of how do you listen and execute on these things for your customers. Yeah. Great. So um, I'm going to kind of pivot. There's a bunch we can talk about in terms of how you look at your companies, everything else. But um, I think let's focus here for now. So our title topic is the white space between PLG and enterprise selling uh, and the chasm that can kill your company. So uh, great, great topic. Never, uh, nobody's brought that that up before in our, our hundred plus that we've done. So, um, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a hot topic. Um, you know, and I really like the literature that came from Menlo and Naomi specifically on on PLG. Um, and I, I feel like you know what I see and hear from founders and you know talk to a lot of them is you know they think they're either a PLG company or an enterprise business, and there's like there's nothing in between. Um, and I think it's really seductive to think through customers that will pay you a million dollars. You know, Instabase is a company that I, I'm involved with personally. And, you know, they were able to do that with, you know, several customers, not to share anything too sensitive, like, but that's very, very hard to do. And, you know, there's maybe public company examples like Viva where the founders had the network to go do that. And then I think every, you know, technologist founder, you know, imagine if you have classic, you know, CTO and product focused founders, um, you know, they, they want to be a PLG company, right? They want to go be the next um, Stripe. But I, I think a lot of companies forget, you know, it really is kind of more of like a hand to hand um, kind of problem that you need to solve for your first 10 customers. Like you, you need to really, you know, make sure the product works, you know, take it on yourself to go get it implemented, um, ensure that they're seeing ongoing value in the product. So I, I think, I've just seen a lot of companies, you know, zero product, zero customers, and they want to be PLG. Well, the reality is like, you're going to have to go find those customers, do the work for them, ensure that they're successful. And then over time, you know, you might, you might have the opportunity to kind of build into the enterprise, but you know, there's, there's just a lot of nuance and subtlety. I think really based on the, the stage of the company um, that a lot of folks are missing, you know, cause the reality is to build a, a great company, you're going to need, you know, the best product, good marketing, and probably exceptional go-to-market, right? Which means um, everything that goes into how you think about predictably finding, acquiring, and then making a customer successful. So I, I think there's a lot there that, you know, gets bucketed kind of as a false dichotomy. Um, but the reality is different phases of your company are going to require you to leave with different strengths. Um, and even when you think about additional products coming to market, if you go from being a 
single product company to a multi-product company saw that evolution inside a place like Fox as well. It's different and you need to repeat the cycle, right? Where, you know, it's going to be relationship dependent. It's going to be heavy on you versus the customer. And then maybe you have a product led motion over time, but you know, it almost never starts that way. And I think if that's your initial goal in founding a company, it's going to be hard for you to get the feedback um, that you need to go build the best product in market. Yeah. Product signals could help. <laughs> right. Uh, and then, so speaking about that, so the, the early on, right. So that, you know, product market, if you don't product market fit, you kind of, you, you, you don't have a company. So what, what are some, um, maybe best practices you've seen? What are some mistakes that you've seen around kind of determining product market fit? Yeah, I think, you know, founders uniquely own product market fit. You know, there's another good from, you know, Doug Leone where it's like, we, we can help with everything else in like, as founders, you need to go find the product market fit. Right. And I, I think what, what gets lost in that journey for product market fit is you're trying to find the biggest unsolved problem that doesn't have incredibly complex product requirements. Right. And you, you need to figure out, you know, what does that product look like? Where do those customers live? How do you get those customers to trust you? And then how do you do the work of proving that you've actually built something that solves that problem? So I think where I've seen companies go wrong with that, you know, it's, you cannot delegate product market fit. Um, you, you cannot take on incredible product complexity before you have any customers. Um, and ultimately you need to understand that your first, you know, end customers, I don't know if it's 10, I don't know if it's a hundred depends on the the type of product and the price point of that product, um, they're going to expect you to do more for them over time. Right. So, so you really want to optimize for like, how do you get in the door for those customers and picking great customers means, you know, they're going to, they're going to help you define the market together, which is how do you grow the addressable opportunity? Um, so I, so I think it's, it's kind of a unique combination of sometimes any of those three things or all of those three things going wrong. And it just makes it that much harder to get through that, you know, kind of initial product market fit phase, where it's your first few customers, it's the simplest version of the product, and it's the segment of the market that you feel like you can get to, you know, predictably. And that could be based on network. There's a bunch of different factors that go into where do you start. Yeah. And when you went, um, I don't know, the, uh, I'm not asking the question on the answer, but on, on sales bricks, when you first got involved, where were they on that product market fit journey? Um, I think John's a great example of like what I think you can do to kind of shortcut this a bit. Um, you know, flat is a good example. Product signal is a good example. So sales bricks, like if you're building a product for yourself, um, you know, it takes way fewer conversations for you to know what is the insight and what was the biggest problem that you had that, you know, is currently unsolved. Um, so I would say they, they had built a very impressive product very quickly. And, you know, I was kind of blown away and surprised by the talent of, JL, who's the CTO of that business, but John was the initial buyer, right? So if, if you're going to go build a product for yourself, you know, it should be a great product. You're going to use the product. You're going to have insights around, you know, what you need this to do that no other competitor market could do. And you probably have, you know, five, 10, 25 friends that you've worked with in similar roles where you can go tap them on the shoulder to go be your first, you know, basket of flagship customers. Um, so that they were pretty far along the path, you know, did not have revenue. Um, but, but knew exactly what they wanted to build, had a good product and market and needs to just go get in the field to make those customers successful. Oh, awesome. And then obviously on the product market fit side, as things progress, 
Um, there's you know a, a lot of other things then that are I assume kind of critical on your kind of metrics as you look at your companies, right? Yeah, per, you know, personally, we're oftentimes investing before there's you know a ton of uh, you know traction, and I do think um, I, I have a friend who describes angel investing as like you know the level of trust you'll have in your network. You know, if someone has worked with someone. Um, right. and they think they're great, you know, you, you, you need to get what they're doing. You need to feel like they have a reasonable approach. You, you hope there's other folks investing so they have enough time to figure it out. Um, but yeah, when you're starting early, you know, you gotta, you gotta coach through and, and ride through, you know, the, the period where there's not a ton to evaluate. And I, I think that's what is somewhat seductive about investing in innovation and being a venture investor, right. Is like, you know, it, if, if you've seen it enough, you can pattern match, choose a product. Um, I, I like the idea of getting behind those because I can see it, feel it, touch it and have like more constructive feedback to give as an investor. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a bit different when, um, you know, you're, you're coming in early. Um, and there's a Navalism too, where it's like anyone who comes before me is throwing darts. Anyone who comes after me is like, you know, a spreadsheet monkey, there, there's some truth to that, you know, based on where you come in, because everyone sees the opportunity a bit different based on what they can evaluate. Yeah, for sure. Now, what about um, kind of, we're kind of in an economic downturn of, of sorts, depending on whatever words you want to say. So um, how do you feel about the importance of go to market in uh, th this type of environment? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. You know, I think any company of reasonable scale, um, you know, especially if they're charging like a more premium price point, which is some somewhere on the spectrum to enterprise, um, you need to assume your customers are thinking about, you know, cutting costs and, and saving on anything that, um, you know, they don't need to spend on. So it, it's a, it's critical to have relationships with your customers, you know, first and foremost, the second thing is it's critical for them to feel like they can confide in you and they can, trust you around their, their next class of business problems. It's always better to solve a critical problem and have the opportunity to do more for them over time. Um, but I, I think a lot of it comes down to not just, you know, features and functions of your product, but use cases and what's the impact on their business. Um, so you need to not just have that conversation when you're selling, you need to have that conversation, you know, on a regular basis, once they've implemented the product and it's working, you know, having this kind of, more strategic conversation around what else can we do and, you know, where would be the biggest impact to make in your business. And I think, you know, as an executive, you want to work with vendors where they're seeing like the bigger picture, you feel like they understand your business. Um, so if you're not using anything and there's like a single, um, a single use case or a problem they feel like they can solve themselves in house or with a cheaper competitor, you're, you're in a really tough spot right now. So I, I think it, um, it's, it's more critical than ever to kind of be hands-on with your customers and, and, and see the opportunity to be a strategic partner for them and, and ideally solve more than one business problem based on the value you sold them. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I put that around that, as you just said, on the whole kind of value side, right? So I would say if you are in an elevator with the CFO and they either just bought something as a current or a current customer are going to buy, you know, what are you going to say? And it's not all the techno mumbo jumbo. It's, you know, kind of how you're going to help them generate revenue, save money, get a competitive advantage. Maybe there's some compliance, but, you know, bells and whistles. And, you know, too, too often, you know, sales teams, you know, still don't nail that, although it's a concept that's been around for 
whatever, 20, 20, 30 years. It's crazy, crazy. 